Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. If you've ever driven up Highway 29 in Napa Valley, you may have noticed that at least from an agricultural standpoint, it's a pretty crowded place. And that's what many people think of when they think of Napa Valley. Winery on top of winery as they zip by on the way to their favorite spot or two. But if you ever wanted to get a sense of what Napa Valley was like before it got so developed, you need to head up Spring Mountain, just north of St. Helena, to Stony Hill Vineyard. First planted in 1948 by Fred and Eleanor McRae, Stony Hill has and continues to make some of Napa Valley's best wines. I sat down with Fred and Eleanor's granddaughter, Sarah McRae, to talk about the history of Stony Hill and to find out just what makes the place and its wines so special. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditer.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditer.com. Hi, I'm John Lennart. Welcome to The Honest Pour. With me today is Sarah McRae from Stony Hill Vineyards, the historic winery in uh, Napa Valley. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So, Stony Hill's like not this up-and-comer kid on the block in Napa Valley. Uh, give me a little bit of the history behind Stony Hill. Yeah, I guess it's sort of the opposite of up-and-comer. We've, Yeah, my we have been making wine since 1952, which, you know, in the, well, and my grandparents even moved there in 1943 and planted in the late 40s. So that was a time when not many people were doing anything other than, you know, chicken farming, chicken prunes, things like that. I think were really more common than wine around, um, around that time. So it, we have stuck with it for a long time through thick and thin and, uh, it's, so it's been a good ride. <laughs> Yeah, your, grand, your grandparents bought the property, and now Stony Hill is um, north of St. Helena? North of St. Helena. We are on Spring Mountain, in the Spring Mountain AVA. We are probably halfway between St. Helena and Calistoga, way up in the hills, uh, maybe three miles off the main road, and um, surrounded by State Park all around us. So no real neighbors either, just trees, forests, deer, coyotes, um, <laughs> not many other grapes around. Yeah, not a lot of grapes around there for sure. <laughs> Which is a really strange thing in the valley that's gotten so crowded to actually be somewhere and sort of look all around you and see nothing but forest. Do you think that, I'm going to get back to history for a minute, mm-hmm. in a minute, but do you think that that kind of, you're not in a monoculture there because no. you're going grapes, but around you are the trees and mm-hmm. all, you know, everything else that grew there sort of indigenously in the state park. Mm-hmm. Do you think that adds to the wine? I think it, I think it does. I'm, you know, I think it, well, if only in the sense that there's great wildlife all around. And, you know, I see a lot of other vineyards that are, you know, have up owl houses and, you know, things to attract birds and, or lots of other things to keep birds away. Uh, but, you know, things, um, people really trying to bring wildlife back into the vineyard, whereas we really have no problem with that. We've got, you know, all of this forest and wild land all around. So everything's already there. So sort of like biodynamics um, are built yeah. in almost. Now we do have fence all around to keep the deer out, which is pretty important yeah. for us because there are a lot of deer up there. They, you know, I often, when I'm driving up the road, I'll see them just, they all sort of stand and congregate right at the fence, looking in at the vineyard. <laughs> looking their lips. God forbid there's no, you know, hole in the fence. Uh, so, so your grandparents bought the property mm-hmm. in the Late 40s, right? Early 40s. Early 40s. 43, yeah. And they decided to plant Chardonnay, which was not really the grape of the time to plant. The, no. I mean, 
Definitely not the grape of the time, but it's what they like to drink. So I think they thought this is an interesting spot. It might work here. Let's give it a go. Um, they, it definitely had no track record and they were advised by numerous people to plant a few different things, which they did. We actually planted Chardonnay, Riesling and Pinot Blanc were the first three things. And the Chardonnay worked beautifully. And I think it's partly because, uh, we do have this great northeast exposure, so we're not in a you know on the east side of the valley where it's intensely hot in the afternoon, and we get this really really you know long sun. Um, and we're up high, you know. We're relatively speaking, we're at about well, we go from about eight hundred feet to about sixteen hundred feet. So you're so, actually up on uh, the mountain. Yeah, you're not we're on the high, bench yeah. or mm-hmm. which. Depending where you live in the country, 16, you know, 1,200 to 1,600 feet can sound very high or it can sure. sound ridiculously low. But for growing grapes, you know, just being off the valley floor makes a big difference in terms of the temperature. So, when you, With the first few grapes that were planted, your grandparents sold a lot of them. They did. We did sell quite a bit for the first few years. Uh, first couple of years, everything. And then, as I said, 52 was the first year we actually made wines. I mean, a little bit, and then, you know, sort of increasingly more and more over the course of probably the next 10 years, up maybe 15 until we got to where we are now, about 4,000 cases where we've stayed ever since. Uh, 4,000, that's all you make? That's it. That's it. But, you well, know. you got such a great presence, it feels like you're I a much know. higher production well, winery than that. But, you know, we've got about, f- currently about 30 acres planted. And we dry farm, so we get pretty low yields. So we use what we, you know, we make the wine out of what we, the fruit we get. And so it's is, not heavy, heavily, you know, heavily yielding vineyards up there. But, uh, yeah, so in, oh, you were asking about selling fruit, though. Yes, we did sell quite a bit of fruit in the early years. We sold a lot to uh, Lee Stewart at Souverain. You know, over the years, Christian Brothers bought a lot of fruit uh, back when there was a there Christian in, Brothers. There Joe Heights did Joe a, Heights used to buy a, a lot did, of fruit. Did a, did yep. a single did, vineyard of the did. Pinot Blanc, yeah? Yep. Um, the Semillon that we eventually planted, we planted specifically to sell to Christian Brothers. That was specifically, that was what I was thinking when I was thinking of Christian Brothers. Uh, but yeah, Joe Heights for a long time brought a lot of, bought a lot of fruit. Yeah, and then over time, we just started making more and selling less and to the point where we really stop selling fruit altogether. So you don't sell any fruit anymore? The only thing we sell now is in 2004, we planted some cab. So we caught up with everybody else and planted some cab and now make a <laughs> little cab. Anything, Mike, I know. I think this has got a, got a future. Um, <laughs> but we planted more than we really needed. So we have been, uh, except for 15, where it, the crop was just too small, we've been selling cab fruit every year. And then 15, we kept it all. Cause, and I, I think this year we'll actually end up keeping it all too because... It's looking fairly small again. Small yield again mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. How much cab are you making? I make about 600 cases. Okay, so, so just not a too bit, much. Just a little bit. Yeah. I tasted the, I think I tasted the 11 when I came and visited you I last think, year. yeah, it was probably the and 11. it was this cool, what I like to describe as like an 80s style Napa cab. Yep, that's exactly how we talk like, about um, it. Old, st- old school green, Napa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the 11 is, was probably even a little greener than any of the well, other vintages, 11 of course. Is 11, but, right. uh, but yeah, it is a restrained, old school, sort of food friendly cab. It I, is I dig not. It. Yeah, it's not the, that big, giant, big, lush. Huge, yeah. Uh, so, you know, and they're all one, you know, every style of cab from Napa is amazing and wonderful. But this week, you know, basically, when we said we were going to do a cab, we said we need to do it in a Stony Hill way, which was definitely 
old school. <laughs> so that's how we ended up there. It is the cab equivalent of the Chardonnay that we make. So How so? I, I mean, just in the sense that it is pulled back and it's not, you know, it has a lot of uh, maybe nuance to it. Um, I think maybe that might be the best way to describe sure. it. Yeah. Let's talk about your Chardonnay. Obviously, we yes. can't talk Stony Hill and not talk Chardonnay. <laughs> you, don't, you don't use a lot of oak. I mean, your, your, oak, your oak, it's, it's, it's Wait, old. Everything is in oak. Everything is aged in oak, but it's all neutral. So neutral. none of that old, oakiness right? is coming through. Very, yeah. It are anywhere between about 10 and 30 years old. So very, mm. very neutral. If and, there's such a thing as very neutral. Right. <laughs> and no malolactic? No malolactic. So just, just clean, fresh just fruit. Just let the fruit be what it is. Yeah. Now, not having this oaky influence and not using mellow, mm-hmm. you might think you end up with a super kind of linear wine, right? Yeah, but it, you know, there's something about this, these older vines and the hillside fruit and the, I, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the dry farming and the, these vines have struggled a lot for a long time and they just make really interesting I think, and rich fruit that adds, uh, that does what it needs to do to tell the story in the wine. And it, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of story there. So, you know, when it's young, I think people might say that, but it ages very gracefully and it gets very, very interesting and more complex as it gets older. And it doesn't age on the leaves at all, right? No. After fermentation, you pull the leaves off. Yeah. So again, leaning towards that. Yeah. It's just, you think, be- oh, it could be very one dimensional, but it doesn't end up that way. Yeah. In cooler all. years, is that more of a struggle? I don't think so because you know cooler years in our area are relative you know it's kind of a relative term it's like you know oh well it still didn't rain at all but it just was fewer days over 95 you know (laughs) cooler doesn't mean you know sort of France right conditions um, which can be so volatile sure so how would you say your farming compares to well you don't have any immediate neighbors but yeah your neighbors to our immediate immediate neighbors we do something (laughs) yeah um so we are we are up in the hills uh which i think is the first probably big challenge for us we've got little terraces we've got a lot of steep slopes things we've done have been very great in terms of um, erosion control measures and saving the land, it's made it even a little harder to get moisture into the ground, which I think has decreased our yields even a little bit more, which has been an interesting phenomenon. But the fruit's been really amazing. It's just maybe even a little less fruit. You know, Mike is a, Mike Kalini, who's the winemaker and been the winemaker for 43-ish years now, um, is a pretty much of a traditionalist and has been doing everything... Um, but in his own way for a very long time. And he runs the vineyards and he runs the winery. He does, he's sort of like wow. full. So yeah. it's really his he's, baby, huh? Yeah, it's his, it's his thing. Okay, so that's enough of the technical yeah. geeky kind of stuff. Yeah. And what's your role at, at, at Stony Hill? Well, I'm, uh, I'm running the business now, um, which in a small family business means everything under the sun. So some days that's just buffing glasses and some days it's doing fun things like this. And it's a lot of... Um, Traveling and spending time with distributors and restaurants and things like that, uh, but also a lot of stuff back at the winery, seeing visitors. And you kind of grew up there, so yeah. it's kind of like going home, huh? It is. It is. It's. Uh, I didn't actually grow up there at the winery. That was my grandparents' house, but uh, I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid. Sure. So. 
Any any favorite memories from when you were a kid about oh, the winery? I don't know. When I was a kid, my job was always so we still to this day sell most of our wine direct to our mailing list, and uh, yeah, and we it's a little bit different now, but historically we would just send a letter to everybody in the beginning of September and say, here's the wine for the year. What would you like? And then everybody would write us back. And in those days they would actually write us back. We go to the post office every day and pick up large stacks of, of, of mail from people. Uh, but I would spend um, a lot of time in my childhood stamping and licking envelopes every September. That was kind of my job. <laughs> Sending out so you all literally started in the mail room. I did start in the mail room. Yes. <laughs> That's but great. yes, I did not start in the. Uh, I did not get to you know help make the wine so much when I was young. I got to, I was front office. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, fair. I still do not make. Mike does such a beautiful job making the wine. Nobody gets in Mike's way. Yeah, I got to figure that. you stay out of yeah. his way and just let him keep doing what he's yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I do spend lots of time with Mike, and we talk. You know, we work on lots of things together. But that is his purview. And any favorite vintages, favorite stories behind a particular wine that you've made? Oh, there's something about the 2008. Of course, I wish I had some 2008 for you now that <laughs> sure. I'm talking about it. But there's something about the 2008 that I really love. Chardonnay. I'm talking about Chardonnay specifically. But it's just a really, uh, ever since it was a baby, and, you know, our, our wines are babies for quite a while, and then they kind of grow into themselves. But ever since it was a baby, it was just a really interesting and kind of luscious version of Stony Hill Chardonnay and it's just grown up so nicely and I had some just a couple of nights ago and it's a beautiful beautiful wine right now and I think it'll I assume it will have a quite a long life as they as most of them do but that's that's kind of a favorite it's not really a good story about it but yeah, it is something that I'm really loving right now you know Chardonnay could be so many different things and it's it sort of gives the winemaker a real broad spectrum of what they can do it could be round and that then it could mm-hmm. be high acid. Mm-hmm. If you had to describe to somebody who's never tasted a Stony Hill Chardonnay, what a Stony Hill Chardonnay is, mm-hmm. what would you say? What would I say? I would probably say it is. Well, it is definitely on that sort of. It is not on that big round side of the Chardonnay spectrum at all. But what it is, not versus what it isn't. Um, it it it's lean, clean, and crisp, and probably more old world inspired than what people would expect from California. That might be how I would describe it. Uh, It's a a style of Chardonnay that is um, meant for drinking with food, really lets you taste the fruit. And my mother describes it as Chardonnay that tastes like Chardonnay. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, there are a lot of Chardonnays out there that are Chateau 2 by 4 It tastes like, yeah. Uh But uh, clean, crisp, and um, uh, all about the fruit. So we know, we talked about Chardonnay. We talked about the Cabernet you make. Mm-hmm. And you make a couple other things, too. What else do you make? Yeah, we also make uh, the two other primary wines that we make are Riesling and Gewürztraminer, which are wonderful aromatic white wines that most people are familiar with Riesling. Sometimes they remember that their grandmother drank it and it was too sweet for them or, you know, what did they have their ideas <laughs> about it. Um a lot of people have no idea about Gewürztraminer, but they're actually kind of they're they're um, similar wines in that they both have Alsatian roots. People talk about them as you know the Alsatian varietals, and they are wonderful 
aromatic white wines that are great sort of aperitif wines or, um, you know, wonderful with food. You know, Riesling is known as probably the most versatile food wine there is. And we make the Gewürz in a bone-dry style, so no sweetness to it at all, which is a little bit unusual. You don't find that too often. And then just a just off-dry Riesling, so it's not a particularly sweet Riesling. Make a few hundred cases a year of each of those, and they have great loyal followings, and they're... Um, some of my favorites and wonderful for summer, hot weather. Yeah. Which we're, you know, coming to the close of hot weather, I assume, for the year. We got some Cabernet, though. Yeah. We're okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your grandparents obviously had a love of wine mm-hmm. to go and do what they did to say, against what was recommended, we're going to make Chardonnay because it's like the white burgundy that we love. Where did their love of wine come from? Do you know? You know, I don't know. They also had a love of cocktails. So they were, (laughs) they did love their wine, but they also, you know, from, they were kind of known as cocktail people too. But I guess that was the era. I don't know. I don't know if there was, uh, they had gone to France a few times, I think, over the years. And, um, but I think it was also just, if you were into wine at that point in time, which not everybody was, States, and, right? Yeah, and you wanted something that maybe was in a 750 and not in a big jug. Uh, you often were looking to European wines still because there just weren't very many American wines that were sort of at the higher end of the spectrum, I guess. So they probably, I think they had just uh, probably from friends and, and, and people around had gotten influenced a little bit. And But I don't, there's no sort of seminal story that I know where, you know, they had this epiphany when they walked in the sure, in yeah, such yeah, and such yeah. a place and all that. It just kind of came to them. And uh, they really, when they moved to St. Helena, bought this piece of property, I don't know that they actually said, hey, let's go do this and let's plant grapes and make wine. They, uh, they really said, let's get out of the city and have somewhere to go and then kind of fell into the winemaking part of it. And I think they were, it was a sort of an obvious thing to do, but it wasn't the primary intention either. Okay. Um, so just let's go get a beautiful little piece yeah. of property up on the hill well, somewhere. Well, they had some friends and... who lived on a kind of adjacent, uh, and they used to go and camp out on their land and stay with them in the summers. And uh, if any, if you've ever spent a summer or any time in the summer in San Francisco, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of people want to go spend some time maybe 40 miles away at least. <laughs> it gets very cold in the summer in San Francisco. So it's nice to be able to go find somewhere warm to go. So, so you're most of the way up the valley mm-hmm. and kind of up the mountain. Mm-hmm. What what is it, is it, Does it get really super warm up there or is it cooler for Napa Valley? How, how the thing it? that happens up in the hill is... It stays a tiny bit cooler than the valley floor in the daytime and a tiny bit warmer at night. So it's a little, the fluctuation in temperature relative to the valley floor is a little bit less. Um, so yeah, it does have this little bit, but you know, we're talking, you know, if it's a 97 de- degree day on the valley floor, it might be 94 up where mm-hmm. we are or, you know, maybe yeah, yeah, two yeah, degrees. Yeah, yeah. It's not, not it's not like, swings. you know, heading up to the mountains to get away from the heat kind right. of temperature difference at all. And the, there's a little bit more of a breeze. We get a little more airflow up than you would on the valley floor. But it's, you know, a, an average summer day is going to be in the maybe low to mid-90s. Yeah. 
So, you know, somewhere between high mid eighties to high nineties, sure. anywhere in that so range. So pretty typical. You'd expect for Napa yeah. to be. Yeah. Um, and nice and dry heat, you know, it's not humid there. Sure. Sure. Yeah. In, am I right? Do, do you hold your wines a little longer before release than typical? So the Chardonnay, for example, it's nine months in the barrel. Then we'll bottle it. It'll we'll hold it for another year before we will release it to our mailing list. So we're about to release next month the 14th to the mailing list. Uh, but then we will wait another two years before our restaurants and our wine shops that we sell to will get that wine. So they'll get the 14. To, they're about to start taking the 12. <laughs> Why do you do that? Well, because the wines are known for their maturing slowly and then aging gracefully. So people tend to like them with a little bit of age on it. So a lot of people who buy them direct from us are... Those are folks who are going to set they're them gonna down They're going to set anyway. them down. They're not going to drink them right away. They've, they've been buying every year, so they're going to drink their stuff from two or three years ago, maybe, or 10 years ago, or where everybody's on their own schedule. So, but so what you're um, doing is, is you're, you're allowing the restaurants to not have to carry the inventory till exactly. the wine's ready. It's so rare that a restaurant these days actually has a big yeah. seller. People just don't keep that much wine anymore. And so it just gives them an opportunity to get wines that have a little bit of, that are a little closer to sort of prime drinking time. Sure. So, sure. They, they like it that way. Yeah, there was a story I heard uh, a winemaker was at a restaurant saying, you're selling my wine too young. And the <laughs> restaurateur said, why are you selling it to me then? Yeah. And you're, you're, you're avoiding that situation. I think that's terrific. Yeah. I, I'd, like, I'd like to see more wineries do that. And it's great in probably, you know, 80% of the cases. But there are, you know, there are places that I have gone to um, to sell wine over the years that have said, well, my customers, if they see something, if they see an 09 on the list right now, or even, you know, actually today, even if you saw a, like, like a 12 on the list, people might think, oh, it's somebody's trying to unload inventory or it's not good know. anymore see a 12 or whatever. Now. And, you know, for us, a 12 is too young to drink, right. you know, <laughs> practically. It's like, okay, um, we're getting into the drinking yeah. window. But if you don't know Stony Hill Chardonnays, you're you might think, oh, that's something I shouldn't really be drinking anymore. It might be past its prime. But in in our case, it's not. So it just requires some explanation. I remember when I visited you and we were talking with Mike and he talked about tasting a great vertical of, of Stony Hill Chardonnays. Mm-hmm. Were you part of that tasting? No, I was not at that tasting. That um, Unfortunately, he and his wife were there, uh, but I was not there. So what's the oldest Stony Hill Chardonnay you've tasted and what's it, how's it drinking? In... In recent years, the oldest that I've had is probably a 73. That was beautiful. <laughs> Still yeah. hanging in, huh? So early 70s can be really, really no nice oxidation, right No now. heavy oxidation yeah. or anything. Yeah. I mean, if they've been stored well, and the, yeah, they can be beautiful. I mean, it's one of the things that frightens me so much about buying white burgundy is that it's expensive mm-hmm. and premature oxidation is just rampant. Yeah. And I've been burned too many times. And yeah. We don't see that at California Chardonnays, and I think that's a yeah good thing. Um, it's um, you know, it's just one of these. There's so there's so many of these horrible problems and variables and what you know and corks and premature oxidation and all these things that can you know sort of liabilities that you know it's things that it's keep kind of a high risk game. I, they they do they really do, but you know. Worked bottles of wine happen. Sure. Um, and it sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But 
I guess it's part of the fun too, you know, it's, it's sort of a living, breathing thing, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a slam dunk every time, but yeah, we do have a little bit more consistency in California, which is in so many ways. I mean, the weather alone is just like, you look at what's happened in Burgundy this year and the crops Mm -hmm. are just devastated, devastated. And, you know, we all worry a little about, oh gosh, the drought's making us have a little few, you know, slightly (laughs) fewer Grapes. Tons per acre. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but we all still have crops and we all still have wine and we all, you know. And... Great. Should we taste yeah. some of it? Yeah. All right. So where should we start? Yeah. All right. So this is the uh, Stony Hill. It says white Riesling. It does say white Riesling. Tell, me, tell us Why about white Riesling. Why does it Riesling? say white Riesling? So, yes, I often get asked that question and everybody jokes and says, what do you mean as opposed to red Riesling? But, <laughs> um, no, it's as opposed to gray Riesling is really why it's on there, which nobody knows what gray Riesling is. Back in the day... Well, we used to label it Johannesburg Riesling long, long ago. Right. When we switched, which everybody did at one point, like late 70s, I guess, um, there was still quite a bit of gray Riesling, kind of jug wine gray Riesling out in the grocery stores. And this was a way of distinguishing from that. And it was kind of normal at the time, and other people did it too. And they all stopped long ago, and we never took it off our bottle, and there it is. So, But it's really just it's the Riesling grape everybody knows and loves. It's not a different grape. And no, there's no red Riesling that no, I know of. clearly. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty. So this is a lot of minerality and flower. Yeah, our oldest vineyard that we've never replanted is our Riesling vineyard. So this, these vines, well, some of these vines were planted in 1948. You can imagine the yields out of that vineyard right now are very low. Uh, 1948. 48. Phylloxera didn't hit you. No, we have no. We've actually never had any phylloxera. Really? Um, Even like back to when the Napa, whole Napa Valley got it? This is part of the beauty of being isolated up in the hills, I think. Oh, God bless. That's terrific. Yeah. So uh, we did do some replanting in that era. Of course, we replanted to AXR1 because that was the thing people did, which was the rootstock that turned out to not be um, immune. <laughs> But um, the, so yeah, so some of these vines are the original Riesling vines from 1948, which are beautiful old, you know, crusty old vines with moss growing on them and little tiny bits of fruit on them. And because we're quite low on Riesling right now and actually in the middle of replanting about an acre of Riesling, there's also some fruit from Carneros in this vintage. And there will be for the next probably three vintages. We're going to have some fruit from Carneros, which we love and we've used over the years from time to time. And um, it's also wonderful fruit. But mm-hmm. So this is a kind of a healthy combination. And you said there's a little the RS on here, huh? But I'm not really getting it. A tiny bit. Just, just sort enough, of influence in holding the body of the fruit more than anything. Basically just enough to kind of balance out that pretty strong acid in there. Yeah, definitely um, a kind of lemon-lime mm-hmm. kind of acid mm-hmm. or tart apple. There's almost a bit of a spiciness on the end too, huh? Yeah, that's really nice. Cool that it's from the old original vines too. That's yeah. That appeals to the geek in me. It, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wish they... Uh, I wish them a very long life. I hope they keep going and going. Are they still producing enough to... uh... At some point, I would imagine in the next 10 years, we'll say, this is not a good Mm. use of three acres of prime... The vineyard sits right surrounded by all of our prime Chardonnay vineyards. So it's it's the absolute center of the property and the most, you know, ideal spot. How, How many acres do you have total? The whole place is about 160. About, just about 30 are planted. Very like steep forest in a lot of other places, and then the Riesling. This particular Riesling vineyard is about three acres. Okay, what's next? Next, I've got some thirteen Chardonnay, which is baby Chardonnay. It smells like a baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I was in Germany 
recently, and the winemaker described the wine as having baby speck. <laughs> Little baby fat on it. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Definitely smell the fruit. Mm-hmm. How was the 13 vintage for you? It 13 was, um, well, so, you know, we had these crazy cold, <laughs> relatively speaking, cold and wet 10 and 11. And then 12 and 13 just rebounded in this very dramatic way of like very, um, both of those years, textbook, hot weather, perfect conditions, large crop, everything you would want and expect, which makes for kind of textbook, perfect, wonderful wines. But in a way, maybe they're not. Sometimes the challenging years are more fun and a little more, you know, add these. So you're saying it was too perfect. No, I love 13. (laughs) I think 13 is great. And I actually think this is be- this is going to be a beautiful wine. It's got a it's got a perfume to it. Yeah, it has a an in a kind of a richness to it that mm-hmm. I think is a little bit unique in a Stony Hill Chardonnay, especially at a young age. Yeah, yeah. There's a not that it's round. No, not at a, all. There's I mean, a touch <laughs> of that, like it it it's, leans that direction. Yes, exactly. Compared to other Stony Hill Chardonnay. Sometimes when they're young, like you know, if you tasted this next to like the seven or the nine, which would just incredibly lean at it you know just really really but still bright bright acid mm-hmm. yep yeah this is a give this baby 10 years and come back to it and you're gonna be uh, real happy with it i am and you know we had plenty of it which was great did you yeah and is this the current release that is a current release for the mailing list for the list. not for yeah, our right. wholesale customers right um well i'm not i'm only concerned about the yeah consumer well, side anyway yeah so, uh, so you won't find this in a restaurant you'll probably you be will, seeing 11s and 12s in yeah. a restaurant right now and actually in illinois you may even be seeing nines and tens just because of the way i work with my distributor here they are especially fond of something even a little older so cool we've been working with Mainly nine and ten. And so nice to see so, you. You're yeah. willing to take the time and let the wine yeah. just be, as opposed to well, there's a business need yeah. often for flow. Yes, right? sometimes you want to actually. <laughs> we need to yeah. sell some of this wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if we have it, and we really we've historically been pretty bad about keeping the library, but starting with the '08 vintage, we actually set wine aside and said we are going to make sure that we've got so you, older so wines. from all this time you really didn't library much until 08 yep yeah wow. which is just you know you just want to so kick yourself do, now so but when you're doing these big verticals you're counting on collectors to come through huh well and the one that you were referring to before mike was actually all of the wine from that tasting belonged to the to a great customer collector of ours who has been keeping his old Stony Hills for a very long time, and then filled in a few blanks with you know finding some things sure, out so in the world to do uh, to, to do that tasting. That's really specifically. cool. Yeah, but if we tried to taste from, I think they tasted that night from fifty nine to seventy nine or something like that. We could never do it. Never. Yeah. Get, get some friends who are good collectors. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so this is the two thousand nine. This gives you a little sense of what happens after yeah. a few years in the bottle. The colors starting to get a little bit richer, a little, bit, a little deeper, yeah. a little more. Uh, just a tiny to bit. The, to the gold side, mm-hmm. but just a tiny bit. Not by no means oxidized at all. Yeah. Still leaving a little green in there. Oh, yeah. Just gets a little bit richer and... It, it, it presents itself more. It's little, more... Uh, expressive, it's, yes. Yeah. Mm. It's elegant. It's not showy. Mm-hmm. The acidity is a little less than I'd expected, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't. everything doesn't have to be that ripping acid yeah. up top that... So many people are looking for these days. Mm-hmm. This is really balanced and beautiful, and thank you. Kind of almost like appley. 
mm-hmm. as, as opposed to the citrus side. Yeah, which is probably, you know, when they're very young, it's going to lean more to the citrus. And, right. you know, three years, five years, seven years in, a little more of the apple notes. But, the, you know, they tend to have that nice acid structure for a long time. So that doesn't go away in these wines. Wow, that's really cool. Another one, even 10 more years on this wine, it's still going to be singing beautiful. Mm-hmm. Do yeah. you take visitors at the winery? Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, we see people by appointment. Um, historically, not on Sundays, but actually now we're even... Um, see people on Sundays. We've got somebody working with us who loves to work on Sundays, so why not? Uh, just People just need to call and make an appointment and come visit. And if, if you're listening and you are going to Napa Valley, you really should go visit Stony Hill because it's not your typical Napa Valley tasting experience. It's up at the house and you sit on the picnic bench outside the house and you look down and you see the valley below you and the the vineyards above you and the wineries just right a couple hundred meters away and it's an experience that's not like many others in the napa valley people really ought to go see it i encourage them it is a, a beautiful quiet little spot in a busy bustling kind of world it's yeah. just a great way to kind of get off the beaten path for, for sure. a few hours yeah and we got the cabernet to taste yes we've got one more and this is the 12th mm-hmm. current release of the cabernet which actually unfortunately it's sold out right now but the current release is sold out yeah um but you know in march the new one will come along people can listen to whatever you have to say about it until march <laughs> so so if, if, you, if you want this you'll be able to get it in march yeah via the uh stony hill website yeah Absolutely. As opposed to, I don't have to write you a letter anymore. And no, no handwritten letters anymore. <laughs> now you can just visit the website. It all works very well. Again, this isn't like the super inky, what's become typical of Napa Cabernet. This no, is this is pretty, definitely... It's more delicate. Yeah. You know, it's, it's got a... It's a definitely a lighter... Lighter lighter red fruits, not the mm-hmm. dark brooding stuff that, mm-hmm. you, that you, might be think, you might think is uh, typical of yeah. Napa Cabernet. No, and you know that that really that heaviness is not something that's inherent in the fruit from the Napa Valley. It's some, it really has more to do with when you pick, yeah, sure. and so we just pick. A do lot. you pick early? Yeah, we, well, relatively speaking, yeah. Really good acid and tannin structure yeah. here. And this is young. This is the twelve, so very young wine, but very drinkable right now. Yeah. Though mm-hmm. very drinkable right now, but only better things to come to it mm-hmm. for the next few years for sure. The fruit is just so light and lively. Mm-hmm. And, not that brooding, concentrated, dare to say, not that extracted that I hate. <laughs> this is, this is again, like I said earlier, you guys are making like this 80s style Napa Cab that I really love. That's when I fell in love with Cabernet, that's what I was yeah. drinking. And yeah, and this used to be the dominant style, for mm-hmm. sure. And I, I bet in five years you're going to see not everybody going back to this, but I think you'll probably see a little more of it around. Sure, there's, there's already been a bit yeah. of that. Uh, Definitely people are... Uh, and there are people who never stopped making it this way. There's some amazing producers sure. who, you know, have always made beautiful lighter wines. Well, thank you yeah. so much for the tasting. And you thanks for your time. Welcome. Great interview. Great to get to talk to you and hear about the history of uh, Stony Hill. And uh, again, I can't recommend enough. If you do get out to Napa Valley, go pay Stony Hill a visit. It's a unique experience. It's not like anything else you'll ever taste in, or an, you'll ever experience in Napa Valley. Sarah McCray, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 